This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. Okay. Dear Mom and Dad, I've been at a sleepaway camp for almost three weeks, and I'm getting very scared. Welcome to Sleepaway Camp. Someone is watching you. Hey, Baba Reba! Someone is waiting for you. Someone wants to scare you to death. Good evening, campers. You are hereby invited to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm your head counselor, Eric Winnick, and I'm hoping that for 50 bucks, you'll forget everything you hear tonight. And down by the waterfront, humming a sweet lullaby to a loved one, I'm Bradford Lorick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because tonight, two of us are going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And these folks will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet, as assigned by a true horror aficionado, you, sir. Sleepaway Camp turns 40 this year, and Lord knows we're going to discuss it or die in the shower trying. Joining us to discuss the film that put the camp in camp is a very special guest, Mr. Jack Shoulder. Hello, Jack, and welcome to Scare You. It's it's a pleasure. Um, you know, I, I, I actually got a job teaching in a university, so um, oh. I want everybody to listen up and pay attention <laughs> and take notes. Uh, so for those of you who are not aware, and if that's the case, what's wrong with you? No, seriously, what is wrong with you? Jack is a director best known for such genre classics as The Hidden and A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. He's directed features and TV for Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, MGM, HBO, NBC, Fox, Showtime, Lionsgate, the list goes on. He won an Emmy for editing, And uh, he's had three of his screenplays produced. In addition, Jack has received Life Achievement Awards from Fanta Festival in Rome, Grossman Film Festival in Slovenia, and Fantastic Fest in Austin. So, hey, how are you, Jack? And what are you up to these days? 
Well, I'm uh, sort of retired, I, I guess. I'm, I'm trying to get a, another movie made, a, a vampire movie. And fortunately or unfortunately, it seems like I'm in the retrospective stage of, of, of my career. So, you know, I go to get invited to screenings and festivals and, you know, get to be on juries and stuff like that. So um, it's a daily adventure. You know, I kind of, I get up in the morning and I, I walk along the seashore and I see see what's washed up, you know, and sometimes there's a, a bottle with a message <laughs> in it, you know, that says, come to our film festival, or we're interested in having you direct a movie, you know, those, those usually <laughs> get thrown back, but uh, right. anyway, right, yeah, right. so that, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm doing these days. Cool. Uh, so Jack, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre? And what is your favorite horror film? I've never particularly been a fan of the horror genre. I should I should say that at, at the outset, even even though I'm I'm sort of known for that for for some reason. I guess because I've made a few. I really wanted to be uh, Francois Truffaut or Jean Renoir or you know one of those great humanist uh, French filmmakers or, or or Alfred Hitchcock or Orson Welles. And um, I was working as a film editor in in New York and. Um, was sort of biding my my time until I could direct my first feature. And, uh, you know, I was 25 and Orson Welles had done Citizen Kane by then and I, I hadn't. And so I uh, <laughs> continued editing. Um, I did manage to win an Emmy along the way. Um, I was pretty good at editing. And uh, finally, um, I had a long association with New Line Cinema. Um, the head of the, the company, Bob Shea, was, was one of my closest friends. And I did numerous trailers for them and lots of other stuff. And, and I was sort of like an unofficial part of the company in a way. And they were basically a distribution company. And they decided right around the time that Friday the 13th came out that they really needed to get into production. And they said if they could make a low budget horror film, they understood that market and they could make money. So I came up with an idea, which eventually got made into my first feature and sort of their first feature, not officially their first feature, but it's the first one that they really did all themselves called Alone in the Dark, where I, where I had actually the great uh, good fortune to have Donald Pleasance, Martin Landau and Jack Palance as, as my three leads. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, I, uh, and I was basically trying to make a, uh, an art movie in the guise of a, some people call it a slasher film and uh, didn't exactly set the world on, on, on fire in terms of the box office. And I don't know what would have happened. The next movie New Line made was Elm Street. And then they were doing the sequel and Wes decided that he'd want to direct it about six weeks before they were going to start shooting. So they called me and asked me if I would want to do it. And, and I thought, well, I don't really want to direct another horror film. And I, I certainly don't want to direct a sequel to a horror film. I mean, that would, you know, mm -hmm. what about my artistic integrity? And uh, a friend of mine who was a producer said, Jack, don't be an idiot. Uh, the film will make a lot of money and you'll have a directing career. And, and so I thought about it. And I thought, well, yeah, OK. Um, and uh, it made a lot of money and I had a directing career. You know, I directed up 14 features and some TV and other stuff. And so it actually worked out pretty well. So that, that's how I got into it. The, the, the film that really affected me the most when I was... Uh, a teenager was was the original um, invasion of the body snatchers really scared the hell out of me and and, and I've kind of you know looked look back on it you know to, to kind of think about why it was scary you know because it's like well what's 
what's sort of really primarily scary, you know, uh, and and how do you, you know, how do you make that work? I mean, you know, there's a lot of films that it's like, okay, well, it's scary, you know, if a maniac jumps out of the woods with a hatchet and, you know, is going to hit you in the head with it or something, you know, guy shows up at your front door with a chainsaw. Uh, but that that's that's pretty easy. Like, I think more the, the, the psychological horror. I mean, there's one that I saw recently that I thought was just incredible called um, I Saw the Devil, Korean film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether whether you guys have seen it, but it's it's absolutely just fantastic. Students, thank you, Kay Kaiser. Uh, Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of those brief, spoiler-free synopses we've come to tolerate from you? Do I have to? Yes. Yes, you do. Uh, All right. Cue music. Ricky and his shy, reserved cousin Angela are spending the summer at Camp Arawak, a bargain basement overnight camp in upstate New York run by Mel, a cigar-chomping shyster and staffed by a bunch of adult and teenage degenerates. Angela is initially withdrawn, occasionally catatonic, but is soon brought out of her shell by Ricky's friend Paul, who takes a liking to Angela in the hopes that he might be able to make it with her before summer's end. But there are forces at work, forces determined to put the strangely distant Angela in her place. Bunkmate and camp harlot Judy sees Angela as a weirdo, then a threat when she attracts Paul's attention. Counselor Meg, who can't get Angela to eat, play sports, or swim, constantly berates Angela for her failure to thrive. That's when the murders begin, one at a time, first a staffer, then a camper, and on and on. Mel tries to hide it due to the bad publicity, but as any good camp director knows, murder's bad for business. And the more we learn about Angela's murky past, the more things at Camp Arawak take a turn for the deadly. You know, if I didn't know you better, Eric, I would suspect that you were tipping your hand a little in that synopsis. I can't imagine why. All right, so um, why don't we tell everyone who was responsible for the making of this film? Uh, yes, uh, this film was written and directed by one Robert Hiltzik. Now, uh, from what I've read, uh, Stanley Kubrick actually read the script and was interested in making the film, but he turned it down at the last minute because he couldn't uh, shoot it in London. And worse off we are for that. Uh, Hiltzik only has two features to his name, this and Return to Sleepaway Camp, though his imprimatur is on all five sleepaway camp films uh the og features a panoply of mostly unknowns including felissa rose as angela jonathan tierston as her cousin ricky karen fields as angela's delightful bunkmate judy uh, christopher collett is ricky's best friend paul and uh catherine Kami as angela's equally delightful counselor meg that's m-e-g <laughs> it also features Owen Hughes as the slimeball cook Artie, 
Robert Earl Jones, father of James, as Artie's right-hand man, Ben, Desiree Gould as the inimitable Aunt Martha, and the late, great Mike Callan in his final role as publicity-shy camp owner, Mel. It's obviously killed by being in that movie. Yeah, I think so. Well, he died like three months later. Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. Sleepaway Camp opened on November 18, 1983, and was made for, uh, wait for it, $350,000. Amazingly, it raked in $11 million worldwide, and it spawned four sequels. Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers. Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland, the aforementioned Return to Sleepaway Camp, and Sleepaway Camp 4, The Survivor. Uh, As you know at Scare You, we try to find as many contemporaneous reviews as possible, and they were not great. Uh, Linda Gross in the Los Angeles Times said, Filmmakers working in this genre usually have little respect for the rules of the game or the intelligence of their viewers, and Hiltzik is no exception. He does get points for portraying the often cruel and abusive behavior of teenagers towards another young person. That is possibly the only redeeming aspect of Sleepaway Camp, rated R for violence and language. While Rick Lyman in the Philadelphia Inquirer began his review with the following. Dear Mom, how are you? I went to sleepaway camp this morning. My editor made me go. She's mean. I had to sit through the whole thing. There were other people in the audience. I guess their editors made them go too. Some of them yelled at the screen. Hey man, this is trash, one shouted. This is like some weird home movie, another screamed. (laughs) When we gonna get some action, another pleaded. Lyman went on to say, I should warn you in case your editor makes you go see it, that the people behind (laughs) Sleepaway Camp seem to think that the climax is a real shocker, a big surprise. If you've been living in Sri Lanka for the last 20 years without television or newspapers, the ending might cause your right eyebrow to lift about one-tenth of an inch. No more. The only good news is that there seem to be fewer and fewer of these teen splatter movies, and they seem to make less and less money. That's good news, because one more, and I'm going to be going away to summer camp. Either that or the funny farm. <laughs> you can't write that in a review. Who was that? That was, that? That that was, was Philadelphia the... Inquirer. George Williams in the Sacramento Bee, not to be confused with its sister paper, the Hamptons Bee, was only slightly more complimentary, stating, Sleepaway Camp is a mindless and dirty little movie about a series of murders at a summer resort for teens. I cannot remember one decent thing about it. The photography involves a range of skills from getting the heads of the actors within the frame to to having somebody vomit into the camera lens. (laughs) Does that actually happen? Um, It sounds as if half-filled soup cans were used for microphones 
The acting is sub junior high. The language of the script would make a Marine blush. The plot is completely predictable. The special effects appear to be assembled from a deserted garbage dump. (laughs) Sleepaway Camp was written and directed by someone named Robert Hiltzik. He should be banished from camera land for life. And now's your opportunity to get Hot for Teacher, the weekly segment in which we get to find out just why he who assigned the film, which in this case and every case is you, Mr. Lorick, assigned the film. Well, but before we get started, I just want to confirm, Jack, like Eric, you had not seen this film prior to the assignment. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, great. So, Professor, please inform us and our listening audience why you chose this film for the Scare You curriculum. Well, you know, I I think there are a a handful of reasons why I chose this one for the curriculum. Um, This is not a film that I was naturally drawn to in my childhood when I would be browsing the boxes at the video store. Uh, And in fact, quite the opposite is true. And by the time I was in my sort of VHS horror rental prime when I was around the age of 10, the sequel to Sleepaway Camp had already been released. And the video box art for the sequel, even when I was at the tender age of 10, it felt to me like it was too silly for my time and my attention. And the box art for the sequel uh, features a young adult woman. She's hiking through the forest. She's got a a backpack on. And in that backpack, we see Leatherface's chainsaw. We see Jason Voorhees's, by this point, uh, requisite hockey mask. And we see Freddy Krueger's razor glove. And to me, even at that age, this was preposterously silly. It felt like a parody or a comedy. It didn't feel like something that was going to scare me. And so, of course, with the original Sleepaway Camp sitting right next to it on the shelf, it completely suffered by association. I had zero interest in seeing it. But if we fast forward to the good old days when I lived in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, As was often the case at the time, I was at the apartment of some of my great friends that I went to Vassar with, um, Paul Thoreen and Hannah Boss, who are now the creators and executive producers of Somebody Somewhere on HBO. Uh, We were with my best friend, Brian Thomas. Uh, And at the time, Paul was dating a woman named Marcy, who was the best friend of everybody's friend, Randy Harrison, the actor. And uh, we all regularly got together to watch movies, and often those movies were horror films. And it just so happened that Marcy's favorite horror movie was Sleepaway Camp, and one night she insisted that we all watch it together, and so very grudgingly, I agreed, not that I wouldn't have, and we watched this film. And for many reasons, which uh, should become abundantly clear tonight in this conversation, While this is not a great horror film, I think it's sort of an important one. Uh, And I'm not sure to what degree 
uh, the, the I in important is or is not capital. Um, but there's a reason that Sleepaway Camp has a significance in the genre. Um, this one came near the sort of golden age of the slasher film, which we understand to be roughly from about 1978 to 1984. Uh, it owes to its predecessors, like notably Friday the 13th from 1980, uh, and a, a host of other sort of sylvan set scary movies like Madman and The Burning, both from 1981. And, uh, you know, the, the Burning may have lacked the subtlety and nuance of Desiree Gould, but it did have Jason Alexander and Fisher Stevens and Holly Hunter, uh, and it was put together by Jack Shoulder. Um, Sleepaway Camp breaks a lot of genre rules. Um, or possibly it chose to ignore them, or maybe it didn't even know them. Or maybe it's an exploitation film instead of a true slasher film, uh, because some of it feels a little exploitative to me when I watch it. Um, but, you know, when the title smashes on screen and we get that frantic orchestral score accompanying it, we are at, you know, Camp Arawak of the future. We're seeing it at a time that is after the events of the film have transpired. We've got mattresses strewn around. We've got a warning sign from the sheriff posted on the gate. There's a for sale snipe that's plastered over the Camp Arawak sign. Yet the sound editing suggests that, um, that as Aunt Kate in The Haunted Honeymoon might say, we can still still hear the echoes of the past. When we cut to a sunnier, clearly more idyllic time, we think that we're seeing the titular sleepaway camp in its former glory days, but the joke is on us because there is little sleep, but a lot of camp. Um, and we get the tried and true horror trope of some irresponsible teenagers causing havoc at a lake and a deadly boating accident occurs, the outcome of which is not immediately clear. Um, and there are other tropes that we probably should have in this film, but don't. And then we cut to a flash forward eight years. We're at a fair approximation of a comfortable Georgian brick home with cornices and fanlight transoms over the doors. But inside the house, however, everything, and I do mean everything, is dialed up to 80s 11. We've got garish wallpaper, and we've got a honey of a performance by Desiree Gould as the aforementioned inimitable Aunt Martha. And her performance is so over the top that as a first-time viewer, I wondered if I would personally have the energy to go along on this ride. Um, and her performance and her look, and she will reappear much later, looking like a vaudeville clown on acid. And I think by contrast to the fairly naturalistic and understated performances of the child actors, um, I, I had to wonder if this character, Aunt Martha, was actually not intended to be mentally ill. Um, and, and seemingly the choices get less appropriate and ostensibly more cringeworthy as we go on. 
Um, this is not a particularly well-made film. It's not a subtly crafted screenplay, but it is a quintessential 1980s time capsule. It has a lot of tight t-shirts and short shorts. Uh, it features members of the under 12 set cursing like sailors, which I always find very funny. Um, but I think what makes Sleepaway Camp unique, however, and memorable, in addition to its wacky aunts and unforgettable final image, is the degree of queer coding at work in this motion picture. And so it's not exactly odd that a performance in the first five minutes of the film should conjure echoes of Charles Ludlam and his ridiculous theatrical company. And so it was through that lens in the mid-aughts that I first viewed Sleepaway Camp, and I developed an appreciation for all of the things that it was and kind of forgave the things that it wasn't. Um, and now, of course, when we think about the concept of camp, we have to understand that camp can be intentional or unintentional. And just to define our terms for our listeners, we can sort of very simply define camp as something that is deliberately exaggerated or very theatrical or very affected or flamboyant. And achieving the effect of camp or campiness effectively requires an elevation of something that's held in low regard toward a newer, higher appreciation. And it's very specifically from a sort of film academic perspective that we sort of have to view and understand Sleepaway Camp and its employment or deployment of these ideas of queer coding and intentional or unintentional camp. Angela has two daddies. Angela's doctor aunt is effectively a drag queen. The last frame of the film is either the most progressive and enlightened thing to be put to film in the 80s, or it's a deleterious freak show compartmentalization of otherness. The nature of the monster in Sleepaway Camp is either the best choice or the worst choice that could have been made. And I'm, I'm especially excited to have this conversation tonight with Jack because his own film, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, has undergone a reassessment in similar terms in the 38 years since it first hit the big screen. Oh, what do you know? It's a vaguely futuristic-sounding fire drill. Whatever else you do, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film, stop listening now. Go watch it or suffer the consequences. That's right, it's time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, on a roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. But before we get into it, I have to ask you both, let's establish where we are on the playing field, just a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Jack? Not at all. Eric? Uh, not at all. All right. So let's get after it. On a roll first, we're, we're going to do it round robin style, and we will each name three scenes or aspects or attributes of Sleepaway Camp that worked best for us, and then we'll hand out the detention slips. So Jack, as our guest, why don't you go first and give us your first nomination for the honor roll? Actually, Slim Pickens here. Um... I was kind of impressed by the scene where all the campers come out of the buses and run into the camp. And there seems to be like 
hundreds and hundreds of them that are just like running by. And I'm, I was kind of like, it was a pretty interesting kind of image. And I was also saying, where do they get all those those kids? Did they have them like, you know, form a little circle and keep keep running back around so that they could keep coming? Or did they actually get like a, a hundred, 150 kids? Well, look, you know, part of my perspective is, is that I was one of those people. I, I made a slasher film during what what uh, Bradford referred to as the golden age. And as an editor, you know, I, I, I would work it in these editing facilities where there were a bunch of, of editing rooms. And sometimes there would be an editor who was attempting to edit together a film, that a low-budget horror film that was made by a, a total incompetent, you know, and tearing their hair out and saying, I can't get from this shot to that shot, you know. So, so uh, um, you know, I'm I kind of have a sense of what's intentional and what was just a, a product of utter incompetence. Richard Angela! Oh, here you are. Look what I did. I packed you and your cousin some goodies for the ride up to camp. Wasn't that nice of me? Hmm? Any chips? Why, of course. I believe there's a whole bag. Um, Eric, would you like to give us uh, your first nomination for the honor roll? Yes, I would. Um, you know, while other films of the time obviously featured um, gay characters, uh, transvestites, transsexuals, characters going through some form of, of gender dysphoria, it's pretty striking to see these things in a film made in 1983 and in a genre largely known for shenanigans between straight, mainly white characters. Uh, on top of murder, this film also tackles child abuse, sexual assault, rape, albeit mainly suggested and not shown. That said, the idea that you'd have the cook go after Angela and then Angela kill or at least rape Judy by shoving a lit curling iron into her must have seemed pretty shocking at the time and if nothing else, you need to put films like this in context and see them as, in a way, groundbreaking. Um, Mr. Lorick, do you want to honor us with your first honor roll nomination? Sure. Um, I, I, and this one is pretty broad, but um, I'm going to give an honor roll nomination for being sort of off the wall and, and provocative and engendering, yeah. um, no pun intended, uh, engendering no pun intended. conversation and discussion for 40 years. Um, against the sort of shifting vicissitudes of our culture's understanding of the presentation and embodiment and, and performance of gender. Interesting. Yeah, we both yeah. had a sort of similar response to that. Let's throw it back to Jack for his uh, honor roll nomination number two. There's a flashback toward the end where the two young children are sitting on a bed against a black background and, 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 and either the camera's going around the bed or the bed's going around and the camera's standing still. But I thought it was actually a pretty arresting image. Um, Mr. Winnick, would you like to, uh, to give us your second honor roll nomination? Yes, I would. Uh, so while I had a feeling early on that Angela was probably to blame, I mean, the film really makes little attempt to hide the fact that she is disturbed in some way. I did not see the ending coming. And I have to give the film credit for really going for it. As I said earlier, you know, information about what happened to the children and what they witnessed is, is, and I, and by children, I mean, Peter and Angela is doled out 
so slowly throughout the film rather than in one big exposition dump. And I appreciated that. Uh, so when we finally see Angela at the end and it's she's Peter, we understand why A, she doesn't take showers with the others and B, why she won't go in the water. I mean, again, this is, you know, going back to what must it have been like to see this film? The fact that they show genitals, I, I can't imagine what a shock that must have been. And I'm sorry, Eric, just to clarify, did you say at the end when they show Angela and her Peter? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I yeah, said. I Thanks, Bradford. So. Um, honor roll number two from you, sir. Uh, honor roll number two for me goes to eat shit and live, Bill. Oh, um, God. Ricky's line to Bill during the softball scene, it is delivered with a maturity far beyond his years. It's my favorite piece of dialogue in the entire film. Um, And I will underline how much it absolutely sends me to hear children swearing with wild abandon. And this movie has it in spades. Um, And on the subject of Bill, I would like to give a special call out to Billy's death because he does not, in fact, eat shit nor does he live. And when he goes, it's gory, grisly, grossly implausible, and thoroughly satisfying. But top-notch screenwriting there. So um, let's hand Each it to Hiltzik. live, Bill. Just classic, classic stuff. All right, Mr. Winnick. Up there with Baldies, uh, Up there with Baldies, indeed. Um, yes. All right, Mr. Winnick, how about you? Honor roll number three. Honor roll number three. Um, the special effects here are nothing to write home about. Uh, and, and for the most part, this film doesn't really show anything, but I, I suspect they blew their FX budget probably on the glycerin that was all over Artie's face after he's burned um, and sort of the little lava type effects on his skin, the sort of pustules. I don't know what you'd call it, Bradford. Uh, so that and also the latex that was used as Meg's back after she's slashed open. It seems like, you know, that's that's probably where the budget went. Um, the head covered in bees, pretty neat effect. One has to wonder uh, if Ari Aster picked up on this when, and if you haven't seen Hereditary and plan to, please skip 10 seconds ahead. Uh, when we see Charlie's head by the side of the road in Hereditary, also covered in bugs. I mean, you are, you're a big fan of that moment, Mr. Lorick perhaps also echoed in the wicker man remake not the bees not the bees speaking of bees give me honor roll number three sir all right um i would say that as unimaginative as it is as obviously pulled from the actor's own closets as it looks uh the costume quote unquote design is pretty delightful And I think from this vantage point, it is loaded with nostalgia for the simplicity of the early mid 80s in America. Huh. I mean, to me, that's what I was wearing every day in 1983. But uh... detention after school, both of you, you'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just Just perfect. perfect. Okay, now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss 
what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. I think we're going to get a few of these tonight. Uh, Again, Jack, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? The opening scene with Aunt Martha that was so bizarrely over the top that camp doesn't even do it justice. I mean, it, it, it was kind of like a scene out of a John Waters movie, but, but without any talent huh. whatsoever or intention. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's that one number really one set the tone for me that, that, that obviously this, this uh, director is either out of his mind or utterly stupid or has no taste whatsoever or understanding of what any sort of acting is all about. I mean, it was just like, how far can I push this into the realm of hideously bad acting? So yes, that was one. But, you know, I I have to wonder how much the actress brought to the table in that performance, because it it is so unlike anything else that's happening in the rest of the film. Here's kind of how it works. So, if you're the director, in this guy's case, the writer director, you know, um, you're the you're the uh, the official point of view. You know, you're the arbiter. You're the first audience. So the actor can come in and do something, and you can say, "Wow, that was fantastic," or they can do something and say, "That was absolutely horrible. That's that's utterly against everything that that this film is is about." And then you change it, uh, you know, and and so if if it's in the film and it's that broad then clearly, you know, he thought that this was good in, in some respect, you know. It was probably a choice, and uh, a lot of directing is, is making a choice, you know. It, it's not like all the ideas come out of the director's head. A lot of, the, a lot of my best ideas have come out of other people's heads, you know, but, but then I have the, the intelligence to, to use them, and then, you know, and then, then I get the credit for, for thinking them up, even though I didn't, you know. Um, and so you kind of have to be the, the arbiter and, and, you know, if you let that go into the film, uh, then obviously you, you thought it was good on, on, on some level. And, and even if, if you thought that somehow it was good, it's so utterly out of whack with everything else. It's completely tonally different from every other aspect of, of the film or at least, you know, I mean, there are some scenes in uh, the film that sort of, you know, rise slightly to that level, but I think unintentionally, but, you know, it just doesn't even fit. And, you know, if he thinks that that maybe that was trying to show that she's like out of her mind, um, you know, there there are other ways of doing that. Uh, Thank you, Jack. Uh, That was your first attention slip. Let Let us go to Bradford now for his first detention slip. Mr. Lorick. I'm going to give my first detention slip to the character of Artie, uh, who is the head cook at Sleepaway Camp, and he is apparently Uh. an unrepentant kitty diddler. Uh, He is completely reprehensible. It is unnecessary. It is uncomfortable making. Um, Could not exist in a film today uh, like this. Um, and, And his comeuppance is so utterly preposterous as to strain credulity more than almost any other moment in this completely insane film. Um, He puts a pot of water 
that is conservatively the size of a four-person jacuzzi on the stove. Um, Seconds later, the water is suddenly hot enough to boil him alive. He's standing over it on a chair, holding onto a shelf, while someone is trying to pull the chair out from under him. And instead of hopping down the 20 inches to the kitchen floor, instead... He grabs hold of an ostensibly boiling pot and maintains that hold until he manages to pull it off the stovetop and cook himself on the floor below. <laughs> Let's just play this out. So the chair gets pulled out from under him. Uh-huh. And he, then he, he leans forward. Down. He, no, he yes. leans forward yeah. about six right. inches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so he falls down and then the pot... The jacuzzi basically falls well, on he, top of him. He's he's like hugging the pot instead of holding the shelf or or stepping off the chair. He's he's you know holding on to the boiling you know the the flaming hot pot for dear life, and then goes backwards, pulling it down onto the floor on top of him, uh, scalding himself in the in the manner that you described very uh, well earlier, Mister Winnick, when you talked about the the latex budget for this movie. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. But all of it deserves a big, fat, arty-sized detention slip. Indeed, indeed. And what um, about you, sir? Give us your number well, one. Well, I, I have two detention slips that relate to this film's tone. Uh, one longer point and two shorter points. So so just bear with me. Um, yep. This is going to sound very familiar, and it's because Jack stated some of these points earlier, but I also wrote them down, so... First, the acting in this film is strictly amateur hour, literally, uh, especially the New York accents and the counselors and the kids. Uh, and I, I recognize for most people that, that that really doesn't matter. But we have to talk about Desiree Gould, uh, who plays Aunt Martha, because I think this is an inflection point for the film. So first of all, Desiree goes way over the top with this sort of stilted performance. And I have to wonder, given no one else is doing that kind of acting, uh, whose choice was that? I have to think it was Hiltzik's. Um, This whole film verges on camp and satire, yet it doesn't really commit to either. Now, some of the scenes you think to yourself, oh, this has to be a joke. But no, it isn't. And I, I, I put forward the following. Number one, Meg arranging a date with Mel. Um, in real life, the age difference between Mike Callan and Catherine Kami was 42 years. Second, children sleeping in the woods getting hacked up simply because they threw sand on Angela. Number three, Gino's laughably tight shorts, which leave nothing to the imagination. Number four, the dirty kitchen with a flypaper hanging down and the, and the roach uh, repellent. The ridiculous death by motorboat in the beginning, which is parodied brilliantly in Wet Hot American Summer, I may add, in which everybody except the people driving the boat seem to, to understand how close that <laughs> boat is. They never once look up to see that they might be bearing down on children. Um, or the shoreline. Or the shoreline. Uh, and a couple more quickly. Mel beating the shit out of Ricky. And of course, the very idea that a kid can get to age 13 or 14 without anyone knowing their sex 
including their own cousin slash brother, is ridiculous. I mean, so there's a huge point in the film, which just blows the whole premise out of the water. Um, It's all this close to parody, but for me, it never quite makes it there. All right. There you go. Speaking about the cast, it it seems like the way they cast this movie was they went out to some street corner in Bensonhurst and had a sign that yes. said, want to be in a movie. Upstate, free, free transportation. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jack, uh, why don't we go back to your number two detention slip? The scene, which is the scene on the lake, which, which you also brought up, but um, it, it's so poorly executed. When the boat tips over, you can see the actor like purposely tipping the boat, you know, Oh, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, scenes on water are a little tricky to do, but the level of incompetence was really kind of staggeringly bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've read many, many horror film scripts, you know, that people sent to me, and you know, that are just yeah. utter garbage, you know. And, and, and basically what happens is that things happen because the writer decides that they want something to happen and they don't make any sense. There's no logic to them. There's no reason why they would happen, but they just put them in. It's like a board game, you know, where the pieces just have to move around the board and it doesn't, and there's no agency. There's no reason why any of this stuff happens. And so, uh, you know, some of the the things that you point out, well, we're going to have this guy and and he's going to be this, this slobbering lecher. And then he's going <laughs> to get scalded in a, in a giant, you know, jacuzzi size, pot of water and so we're just going to make that happen and whatever stupid thing we have to do to make it happen we're just going to do it you know and we get it totally stupidly fucked up and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but it's got to happen because that's what we want to have happen you know like the whole boat thing it was just uh, look i'm the kind of guy that listens to classical music I consider myself a craftsman and I love film. And when I see someone with such an utter lack of craft, I mean, it's worth it. They're, they're bad. Like student movies are, are better. It, 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 it annoys me, you know, and it annoys me. It annoys me that we're actually going to spend two hours talking about this piece of crap. To tell you <laughs> oh my God. As if it's important. Well- one million sleepaway camp fans can't be wrong, Jack. I mean, the thing is, is that, I, you know, it is not perhaps to our taste, but the thing is, is that I think that this film has earned a real reassessment over the years. Would you agree with that, Bradford? I think it has been reassessed. I'm not sure that it um, deserves to be necessarily. Okay. I think I think the interesting question is, is a more general question because... I go to uh, uh, some of these horror film conventions and there are these, these movies that I, I mean, there are certainly some, some good ones, but there are other movies that are just not very good that people just really seem to, to love. And so what I think is interesting is that particular phenomenon of, of yeah. w- why these films have such an appeal. Because, uh, you know, what, one, one of the great things about making, you know, horror films you know, and, and having made some is that the fans are incredible. You know, they're, they're loyal. They're people that have seen these movies, you know, dozens of times and, and, and they love them and, and they, they pay, they don't have a lot of money and they pay a lot of money to get an autograph from, from somebody that, 
you know, that you've never heard of. And, you know, that that to me is is, is I think, yep. the more interesting question. I mean, absolutely. You know, there's a certain kind of sociological fascination that, you know, I certainly have about um, why these films appeal to uh, the the sort of demographic and psychographic that they do, you know, and, and this one, you know, I, th- this film is sort of unusual for me because this is not um, the, the films that we curate for Scare You are films that I love and that I see great value in. I think there's value in discussing a film like Sleepaway Camp, you know, um, oh. and and all of the sort of um, attributes that make it uh, very popular to the horror community. Um, and this is the first time, in fact, that um, I have I have brought a film to the table that I thought was important to talk about that I don't personally love. Can I ask you a question? Do you think this film is so is one of these films that is can qualify as being so bad it's good? No. Do you know what I mean? Like, does this fall into cult classic status for you? It falls into cult classic status, but I don't. I would not agree that everything that has achieved cult classic status is is so bad that it it has come around the other side and and yeah. has. Yeah. Do you know? But uh, again, I mean, yeah. in, in the sort of current climate in which we live, where we are having these conversations about um, gender and the performance right. of gender and um, all, all yes. of these sort of big, important, you know, quote unquote, um, woke conversations. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, yeah. I don't pretend to know how anybody falls in the political spectrum. I am obviously a very liberal um, Democrat. Um, and I think that because of all of these kinds of impulses in our in our sort of contemporary culture, it warranted a conversation about this film in this context. It's so funny you should mention it. Can I actually do my second detention slip? Because it actually follows right on that. Yeah, of course. As daring and novel as tackling some of these subjects must have been at the time, uh, you do have to wonder how much of it was intentional, okay? Like, was the director trying to make a statement? Was it sheer provocation? Was it both? Um, like, was, was the it intention- neither? Was it neither? Like, was the intention to take on these horrible social things as Wes Craven did in The People Under the Stairs, um, the intention to talk frankly about the trauma that trans kids go through? That's admirable. Okay, unless it's just exploitation. And I think that's where much of the discourse around this film has been the past 40 years. Um, There are I have seen essays in which people who are trans claim this film as a revelation and Angela slash Peter as a hero. And then there are trans people who look at this as sheer uh, garbage and exploitation and uh, think it should be reviled. So. I do, I do understand what you're saying, Bradford, in the sense that we have to talk about it. Like, you know, there's no question that this film, regardless of how poorly it is made, is in the, I don't want to say it's in the zeitgeist, but it's, it's suddenly relevant. It's zeitgeisty. It's zeitgeisty. It's, it's, it's suddenly relevant in a way it may not have been in 1983. Let's put it that way. Sure. There's something called the intentionalist fallacy, which is that, the author is not 
the ultimate authority on on the work that the interpreter can inter mm. as, as long as you can do, make an interpretation that's inter that has an internal logic that that works mm -hmm. it's a valid interpretation of of any work of 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 art i've also you know uh you know having been in the movie business for a long time and sat in plenty of meetings with lots of people that i think the idea that that mr hiltzik was was trying to make a statement you know that i think he was trying to just make make a film that he thought would would make money and scare people or shock people sure and i don't think sure. he gave a rat's ass about any of the things that, that yeah. they're talking about which isn't to say right. that it's not valuable as something to talk about you know yeah but as, yeah. as a thing yeah. in a, in and of itself i don't think it has much worth and, and just to be clear, I, I wasn't saying that that he was trying to make a statement. I was asking it as a question, like, is it a statement? Is it provocation? Is it both or is it neither? I don't I don't really know, but I do understand the idea of the interpretation of the film being as valid as the intention. That's that's a very mm -hmm. interesting concept. And perhaps, I mean, to Jack's point, more so, you know, I mean, yeah, once yeah, you've made yeah. a thing and put it out into the world, it is no longer your right. thing. Well, and that's why so many artists don't like to talk about the meaning of their films. I mean, you asked David Lynch, he has never talked about the meaning of his films. And I think it's because he would much, much prefer that people bring their own, uh, you know, interpretation to them. And, 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 and I can particularly speak about this, you know, given my, my history with, with, or the history yeah. of, of Elm Street and how, how its perception has changed from the time that we made it until the, you know, the present. How do you feel about that, Jack? I'm just curious. Like, do you do you appreciate the discourse having changed a little bit over the years, or do you feel like it's not? Do you feel like it's warranted? I will tell you exactly how I feel about it. So, I I made the film. Uh, the reviews came out. They actually weren't weren't bad. They were actually mostly mostly were, were actually pretty pretty good, surprisingly. And and then I got a call from from. Uh, Sarah Risher, who is the head of production at, at New Line, and she said, "Have mm -hmm. you seen the Village Voice?" And I said, "No." And she and she she started to read the article, which called it the gayest horror film of all time, or something something along those those lines. And, and we were both laughing because it had never crossed our minds uh, that 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 was the case. I mean, we 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 certainly knew that it had you know gay content. I mean, you know, I, I was living in, in, in the West Village in the years, you know, after, after Stonewall, when everything was out on the street and the bars were open. And, you know, I, I had this sort of very superficial understanding of, of what was going on, very superficial, because I wasn't part of the scene. Um, you know, I was just, just an observer of the surface, and, you know, and that's, that's a lot of what, uh, what was in the, the film. And then I, you know, the film made a lot of money. Suddenly I had a career, you know, um, and, and things were happening and I just kind of forgot about it. And then, you know, I went to a 30, 30 year reunion and uh, Mark Patton, the star of, of the film, who was at, at the time a closeted gay man and never occurred to us, you know, the girls said, oh, he's so cute. He's the next Johnny Depp. And then I found out what had happened with 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 the film. And at first, I thought it was kind of amusing because it had, you know, in terms of the intentionalist fallacy, it had nothing to, you know, that the, the subject never never came up. The fact that Mark was gay and and 
And when I see the film now, it's, you know, it's pretty clear. But at that time, it never occurred to me. You know, I wouldn't have even thought in those terms. But, uh, you know, as, as I've come to, to see how the film has been received and especially how important it is to uh, to a lot of, you know, a, a, a younger gay fans, I'm actually very, very pleased. You know, it's 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 you know, it's not something that I intended, but it's it's a it's a very nice unintended consequence. And, and again, like, I think there, you know, there are different ways to, 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 to interpret it. I think you could interpret the film as, as, a, as a Christ metaphor. Uh, you know, you have this guy and, and, and he's vilified and he's sort of crucified at the end, you know, and, and he's, he's got mm-hmm. these male friends and he has a female friend who's like the Mary Magdalene. And, you know, you, that you could make a case for that. So I'm actually very, very pleased about it. Honestly, you know, if you if you if you watch Scream Cream, you know, Mark read the script and he didn't even pick up on it. You know, there had to be somebody, right. you know, in the makeup or, or the art department who said, have you realized there's a gay subtext to this movie? And then he freaked out, you know, and I I didn't understand why he was always in a in a, in a slightly sour mood, although mm-hmm. extremely professional. But but he was going through a whole lot of stuff. You know, his 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 lover was dying of AIDS the same time you know there was a lot of stuff going on in, in his life and i had no idea you know i was just trying to get get through the movie in one piece all right uh i'm going to give my second detention slip to the lack of diversity in casting and i think this might touch on some points that uh came up earlier but um i don't mean this uh in the way that you probably think i do i i, I am aware of when this film was made but the casting department with very few exceptions cast a crew of quote-unquote teens who resemble one another so strongly regardless of their genders and they sound like they were born and raised in uh you know some secret dumpster behind the ikea in elizabeth new jersey um that i think sleepaway camp must really play havoc with its audience members who suffer from facial blindness because paul and ricky could be the same actor wearing a wig Um, to say nothing of the absolutely character-free choices made by the production's costume designer, which further fail to individuate Sleepaway Camp's characters or communicate anything about them to the viewer. Um, However, I really want to focus on Judy. Um, And I think it was an inspired casting choice to put an actress who by all accounts looks like she could be playing one of the campers' mothers Uh, in the role of Angela's romantic rival. Um, She's like some overly confident cougar, half in the bag, uh, flirting with teenagers as she kind of swaggers around a community pool. I think she's um, like a very dedicated Los Angeles aerobics instructor. She looks like she was, you know, uh, on break from the Jane Fonda studio. And yes, uh, I was just going to say, she looks like I, an aerobics instructor. I yeah. thought in a film filled with preposterous casting choices, um, she stands out as the most preposterous. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, right. Jack, do you have a third detention slip? I just kind of thought of, the, uh, there's the scene where, where, where Mel gets shot in the throat with an arrow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you oh, happen yeah. to notice yeah. that there was like, like a prosthesis, <laughs> like he was wearing around his neck, where like half the yes. arrow was stuck into one end of it, and the other half, uh, you know, it was like something that you buy in a magic store, you know, or a Halloween yes. store. Was <laughs> really, you know, uh, uh, you know, obviously the editor is like, well, we can't hold this shot for very long, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know? mean, you can you can sort of hear it go like doing, you know, as it pops up on the back of his neck, you know. <laughs> Poor Mike Callan. I mean, he was actually in some real films. He was really just like brought down by the, you know, the, like like the director was like, it's like let's crank this up to eleven. How how bad can you act? You know, just put. Keep going. It's great. Keep going, Mike. You know, yeah. and it killed him. It killed <laughs> yeah. him. Literally, he right. was dead I, three I months. I think later. that ended not only his career but his life. All right, Bradford. Do you have a third detention slip? Uh, I mean, uh, yes. Again, it's sort of broad, like my my first uh, honor roll nomination, but it is for the storytelling. Um, you know, it is often inexpert. It is sometimes dishonest in a way that I bet somebody like Gretchen McNeil would have very unkind words about. But at the end of the day, I do not feel that this is a movie about storytelling. It is a movie about a reveal. And it is about a reputation. A reputation for? For the reveal. Oh, the reputation of the film because of the reveal. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Ah. Yeah. All right. So um, before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. We'll get some air into our lungs, run around a little bit, and maybe even have a snack or two. Um, Jack, when you were growing up, did you have a favorite school time snack? I had a couple. I grew up in Philadelphia, so soft pretzels were like a big deal. And uh, there was a, an Italian guy with, with, a, with a push cart, you know, with a whole lot of pretzels and a, and a big jar with a stick stuck in the jar for putting mustard on the on those. Everybody, everybody got a pretzel after, after school. But but I think the thing that's kind of um, I I've often thought of it as a character test. Are you aware of a candy called Chuckles? Oh, of course. Yeah. These kind of jelly things. There's five of them. Different flavors. Yeah, there's yeah. red. There's orange. There's yellow, which I guess is lemon. There's green, which I guess is lime. And there's black, which is licorice. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think the order in which people eat them is a, is a yes. test of character. So most people don't like the licorice one. That's right. like the least right. favorite. Or maybe the green. And everybody likes the red one the most because it's cherry. All right. So now let's, uh, yes. So now let's take a break and then come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular, Ed. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award. That's the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for Gaspar Noe, director of such delightful, delicious films as Irreversible, Love 3D, Enter the Void, Climax, and of course, Lux Eterna. Lux Eterna. Lux Eterna. So we are looking at the most disturbing scene 
Uh, Bradford, do you want to start us off and give us your most disturbing scene in Sleepaway Camp? Well, on the one hand, I kind of want to give it to the scene where Meg invites herself to dinner at Mel's cabin for a date. Uh, But this movie is from its first frame hurtling toward one moment. And that moment is the last one we see. It's Angela and little Angela making the sounds of a cornered opossum protecting its young uh, and an expression to match. It is the uh, last moment of the film that gets my Gaspar Noe award tonight. It's so interesting you should mention it, Bradford, because I I have to say that I went back and forth between two scenes for my Gaspar Noe Award, and then I realized one is disturbing and one is Baroque, so I decided to split them up. Um, So my Noe Award winner is the scene, yes, in which Artie the Cook takes Angela uh, back to the, um, in the back of the kitchen, what is, is it a walk-in? The walk-in, yep. The walk-in, thank you, thank you, and um, basically starts undoing his pants um, and makes as if he is going to molest Angela, and that that's pretty damn disturbing, if I it's, if I may say so. It sure is. Um, Jack, what do you have for the most disturbing scene in Sleepaway well, Camp? Well, I I also picked the the final shot, but but now that huh. you mention it, that 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 scene, it was like with with Artie, the cook, when he's like undoing his pants. Like, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm wondering, this is like the most sexless looking girl I've ever seen. Why would he, <laughs> why would he want to go after? I, I mean, I'm sorry if I sound like, you know, Donald Trump. Well, I wouldn't have raped her because she's not my type, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, I honestly was in a, a slight case of disbelief when he started to, to, to undo his, his pants. And I actually was happy when, uh, her, 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 her cousin came running in and stopped it. Ricky. Yeah. 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 Ricky showed up just, just on time. Hard, hard choice there. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, okay. Which brings us to our next award. That is the Ellen Ripley award for character that most deserved to live. And this is named of course, for Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley in the alien cinematic, uh, universe. Um, Jack, would you like to start us off and give us your, Ellen Ripley Award. Well, I I think for me it clearly went to to Paul, who was the the one sympathetic character toward uh, Angela, and 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 he meets with an unfortunate end. You know, interesting choice there for the Ripley Award. I I actually was wondering about Paul whether his intentions were as pure as as they seemed. Bradford, what what did you think of Paul? Did you think he was uh, just trying to just trying to uh, get a nice peck on the cheek there with Angela or do you think he was after Paul something more? was really aside from maybe members of her family Paul was the only person who showed Angela any kindness whatsoever I huh. am designating my Ellen Ripley award to Paul as well Jack and I are That's in the so, same boat so interesting yeah yeah and what about you sir well I I I, I mean this is probably going to be ridiculous because, you know, everyone in this film really gets what's coming to them. Certainly our our lead character does some horrible things in this film, but also our lead character has been through some horrible things. And therefore, I have to give it to Angela slash Peter, if only because I, I, I just 
you know, it's is is it nature? <laughs> is it nurture? Is it a is it a combination of both? I felt sympathetic towards that character somehow. All right. So, I th- and yeah. you are ascribing a level of psychological complexity to this that uh, no one else on the film did. So, kudos <laughs> to you. Well, I think I think we both did that tonight in some That's way. That's true. Yes. Um, okay, which brings us to the Michael Myers Award, a name for the, uh, of course, Bradford. How would you how would you describe Michael Myers? The anti-hero of john carpenter's halloween franchise yes this is the character that most deserved to die um should not be too difficult uh bradford who do you have judy Mm. judy Mm -hmm. is she's six months from retirement (laughs) (laughs) and she suffers probably the most inventive and Utterly 80s death, perhaps ever put to a contemporaneous film in the 80s. And she's sitting there, she's being a whore, she's, you know, resetting her payas when all of a sudden she gets that hysterectomy she's been meaning to get around to scheduling. Okay. Uh, and it's at the business end of a curling iron, no less. And not since Skip E. Lowe was dispatched in a similar manner, but a different opening in 1976's Black Shampoo. Has a styling implement been so deviously employed? Oh, I thought you were going to say Edward II. Uh, that also, yes. Good on you. Thank you. Um, Jack, what do you have for the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die? I think Artie the Cook. He's got to go. Yeah, he's got to go. Um, <laughs> interesting because Bradford, I too, chose that overdeveloped bitch judy she has it coming from the minute she appears with those older boys giving ricky the stink eye so uh i agree with you 100 so we have two for judy one for Artie, um and that brings us to uh we're there again can you believe it we've made it once again to our favorite award the ken russell russell award for for most most baroque screen moment um jack are you a fan of ken russell uh yes in in fact i i I even had the pleasure of of meeting him oh please do tell he was just just at a film festival and 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 uh uh, somehow a whole bunch of us ended up in his hotel room and oh my goodness but i i've 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 always really enjoyed his his films do you you have have a a favorite Uh, yes, um, my my favorite is I'm blanking on the name, uh, the oh. the one with 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 William Hurt and the Acid Trip. Oh, Altered States. Altered, Altered States. States. Yeah, that's uh, that's one. Yes, of the Ken Russell film. Fantastic, fantastic. I thought you were going to say that film with Glenda Jackson, in which I would have said which film with Glenda Jackson, um, <laughs> also known for. Uh, the Devils, of course, with Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, the the Women in Love, um, Billion Dollar Brain, um, Salome's uh, Last Dance, my Salome's personal Dance, favorite. Lair of Lair the, White, of the Worm. White Worm, Horror, Horror take, take the, money. the Money. Yes, um, The Rainbow, um, The Boyfriend, Listomania, Listomania, exactly. So this is the most baroque screen moment. Um, I'll start us off with this one. I am going to take Bradford's Gaspar Noe Award and apply it to this particular award. Um, There is a scene in the end when two counselors 
come across Angela and Paul uh, by the waterfront after the social and appear to be making sweet, sweet love, only for her to reveal that she has, in fact, cut off Paul's head and then stands up making this horrible sound, which you described as an opossum, Bradford? Is that, did you? Protecting its young. Protecting its young. A cornered opossum, yes. Cornered, thank you. And revealing that she, in fact, has male genitalia. I'm going to put it as politely as I can. Um, that is a the most Baroque screen moment for me. Um, Bradford, what do you have for the Ken Russell? Uh, I am going to give uh, both Angela's the, uh, the, the Ken Russell Award. Um, you know, it, it, it's partly because... There's a, a frame capture that persists through the entirety of the the closing credits scroll. Yes, I remember um, it. It's a, it's in a greenish tint, I believe. And that that feels plenty baroque. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the that final moment, Angela is revealed in, I believe, what the experts call the old inverse Buffalo Bill. Uh, and oh, Jesus I, I, I think. That gets my Ken Russell Award tonight. Wait, so are you? Did it also get your Gaspar Noe Award, or yes. am I not? Oh, you're giving both. I'm giving both. I mean, this movie All is right. about one thing. It's that thing. <laughs> I'm going to celebrate that thing until I can't celebrate it no more. One scene, two awards. Okay, Jack, uh, what do you have for the Ken Russell most baroque screen moment? It's certainly not not a scene that could have been done by Ken Russell, but I. I simply <laughs> took this as like, what's the most over-the-top scene? And and I thought Anne sure. Martha telling young Peter that she wants a girl. Oh, the flashback. Yeah. yeah. That looks like it was shot in a black box theater in Soho. Um, yeah. I You know, those scenes were shot very theatrically, weren't they, Bradford? They were. I mean, but, you know, also when you look at something like uh, – like the insidious films, you know, or when, when you look at um, some old William Castle films, you know, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a history of using that kind of idea yep. Um, to, yep. to, you know, create that sort of void of memory, you know? Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Um, this brings us to our last award. This is the Brad Dourif award for character that could or should have been played by Brad Dourif, our patron saint here at Scare You, um, a, a man perhaps best known for his performance as James Veneman. The Gemini the Killer. Gemini Killer in The Exorcist 3, directed by William Peter Blatty, but also known for a few other things. Like um, what, Eric? Perhaps, well, that would be Billy Bibbit in Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, John Huston's Wise Blood, David Lynch's Dune and Blue Velvet. And of course, he was the voice of Chucky uh, in the Child's Play franchise. So this is the character that could or should have been played by Brad Dourif. I'm going to ask Jack Shoulder, because I'm sure Jack knows who Brad Dourif is. Who would you have cast Brad Dourif as in this film? Well, I'm, I'm going to go way out on a limb here. And yeah. I'm going to say the pumped up assistant to Mel who wears the super tight shorts. <laughs> oh, was his name Gino? Yeah. Bradford, what was it? Was he Gino? Yes. In that role. That's so funny. With the, Jack, I, that I, is I, the most fucking hilarious thing I've ever heard in my life. Brilliant. That, that Thank is you. Brilliant. That is brilliant. And Bradford, why don't you go second? Judy. 
Oh, Judy. He would have brought an unimaginable maleficence to that role that just Karen feels. She probably just didn't have the energy for it at that point late in her life right. when she played the role. Yeah. Now, did you just say mellifluousness or maleficence? Mal- maleficence. Good on you. Thank you. That's a that's a ten dollar word right there. Okay, right. Um, I'm dying to hear this one. Well, uh, it's it's an obvious choice, and I'm a little bit shocked that you guys didn't choose this. But I mean, for me, it's Desiree Gould as Aunt Martha. I mean, she's a doctor faking medical records. She's got a string tied around her finger. She's acting like a Disney princess. I mean, Dorif would have had a field day with that. He would have made a meal out of that. A meal out of Aunt Martha. All right. All I'm, right. I'm let's let's support let's, that. Let's, I wish. Can yeah. I just, just interject? I would like to yeah, suggest please. one more award here. Yeah, please do. Film, which is the character that most deserved to die and doesn't. Oh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. I, I, I would nominate the, the director, Robert Hiltzik, for creating this <laughs> I think we might have a trifecta on our hands after all. Yay! With that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night, the final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything that we have heard and seen and said about this film. Jack, I'm going to ask you to go first. Give us a final letter grade for Sleepaway Camp. I'm going to give it a D- minus because I don't... I don't think it deserves an F just because an F is sort of a, a mark of distinction, whereas a D minus is, is not. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, Mr. Winnick. You know, uh, Bradford, I, I hear you a hundred percent. This film was absolutely worth discussing and I'm glad that you brought it to us here at scare you. It is a worthy addition to our syllabus. That said, I cannot, give this film anything higher than a straight D. All right. And you, sir. Well, uh, we're about to make some history, folks. Eric, what grade Jack, do you think Bradford is going to give this film? I think I think I know what he's going to do. He's going to give it a C plus. That's what I would have said. Or B minus. Yeah. Let's see what he does. Oh no. All I right, mean Bradford. look, you know, I, I am very uh, I, I'm I'm very clear about this one. I wanted to talk about it. This is the first yeah. one that I brought to the table that I do not love. Wow. Uh, and Eric, we are uh, we are sort of exactly aligned. I'm going to give it a D. Oh my gosh, that is way below what I thought really? you were going to give it. I thought you were going to, you know, because you've never given anything lower than a B minus, I think. Maybe not even lower than a B. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I do want to thank you both for, for going along on this conversation because I, I was oh, yeah. uh, I was excited to have it about yeah, a film that, you know, it probably does not deserve so much consideration. But I think in our current sort of place, societally, yeah. culturally, it was yeah. worth um, it was worth talking about. So thank you both for, for sure. uh, indulging this conversation. I appreciate it tremendously. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. you enjoyed this episode more than we enjoyed the film uh and if you do if you did please tell your friends 
share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet, have a listening party, bring some fucking red chuckles and soft pretzels with mustard, maybe even subscribe. Or better yet, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts because God damn it, we deserve it after watching this film. And be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareupod.com. Thanks again to our guest, Mr. Jack Shoulder. Jack, if people want to find you and your work online, where can they do so? Uh, well, I, I do have a Facebook page. That's, that's about as far as I, I go on, on, on social media. But, you know, if you'd like to uh, sign up, I, I don't post frequently. But, you know, when I do, I, I think it's kind of amusing. So um, there and, uh, you know, my, my movies are, are widely available. So uh, if, you're, if you're so inclined... Check out the hidden, which is probably probably the best, and and also another 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 one that I really love is I did a Tales from the Crypt called Fitting Punishment that 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 I, it's the, the most fun I've ever had making anything. It's, uh, very fun. Ah, uh, um, all right, this is very good. Uh, I cannot uh, believe that uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Jack Shoulder, is on Facebook, but I will be on that page as soon as we um, wrap up this episode tonight. <laughs> Um, and meanwhile, you can find me at bradfordlorick.com. And you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. Our music is by Not a Surf, Van Halen, Edward Elgar, and Sir Cubworth. Uh, Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We will see you next time in the flypaper-strewn camp kitchen that we like to call... Water under the bridge. But it certainly will be a nice little surprise when Richard comes home to find a little girl in the house. Yes, I've always dreamed of a little girl just like you.